Welcome to New Books Network and Caribbean Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today, I'm with Cristina Soriano. She's an associate professor of history and the director of the Latin American Studies program at Villanova University. We're here to discuss her book, Tides of Revolution, Information, Insurgencies, and the Crisis of Colonial Rule in Venezuela which was published by the University of New Mexico's Press's Dialogo series in 2018. Tides of Revolution received the Bolton Johnson Prize from the Conference on Latin American History. The prize is awarded to the best book in English on any significant aspect of Latin American history from the previous year. Congratulations and welcome to New Books Network and Caribbean Studies, Cristina. Thank you, Sharika. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today to talk about the book. Oh, thank you for accepting my invitation. This is going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Let's begin um, um, our conversation today with a bit of an introduction to our listeners. What can you tell us about your personal and intellectual biography? Yeah. So I was born and raised in Venezuela, and I did my undergrad studies at the Universidad Central in Caracas. And originally, I was in anthropology. Um, so I was more interested into kind of a cultural anthropology and working with a kind of a indigenous communities. That was my initial interest when I was like 20 years old. And then I started to take classes in linguistics. And I have to tell you that I just basically discovered back then that communication was such an important, uh, aspect of, uh, society that I basically decided to, I dropped the anthropology, kind of a cultural anthropology part, and I decided to specialize in linguistics. And as I was working in linguistics, I joined a team of people working with kind of a more uh, discourse analysis of 18th century documents. And then I discovered my second love, which is basically history. So I started taking classes in the history department, and I ended doing this kind of a historical anthropology, anthropological uh, field. And back then, my interest was precisely on the interface between the oral and the written. And I was quite interested in looking into how, for example, 18th century Venezuelans used their books or how their books were integrated into their everyday life, what kind of books Venezuelans had in their private libraries, uh, where did I buy those books? Because then I learned very early on on this. Uh, this was this became my undergrad thesis, and I basically discovered that Venezuela was a province of Spanish America that never received permission to have a printing press. And when they finally got a printing press, was basically the same year of the uh, Spanish um, monarchical crisis in eighteen oh eight. So it was basically one of the last provinces to get the permission. And I always, I mean, that question stayed with me for a long time. Why did it take so long for Venezuelans to have a permission to have a press when they were, you know, there were some universities, um, there were some high schools. And so I was like, why, why is this, why is it taking so long for Venezuelans to, to get a printing press? And there are, you know, I look into these letters that uh, especially white Creoles, Venezuela's sent to Spain asking for a printing press, and they always receive a answer like "No, not right now." So that that stayed with me 
uh, for some time until I decided to do my PhD at NYU. Uh, and I basically brought that question with me. And as I was at NYU, I basically kind of discovered the importance of history from below and social history. So I have to say that in terms of my fields, I have the feeling that I'm kind of an anthropologist asking questions into the past, but with a mixing of cultural history and social history. Because then, you know, I, in a way, I discovered when I was at NYU that my work so far was completely concentrated on the white elites of Caracas. And that was another question that I started to develop as I was doing my PhD, which, you know, what happened with subordinated groups of people who are not, they didn't have access to an education. Are they reading? Are they using any kind of uh, written materials? Do they... I mean, this is a, what I think is a semi-literate society where everyone understands the power of the written word and they find ways to access this written world, but you know, confronting also the restrictions that the colonial state and the elites are putting into the access to literacy. So, you know, that was kind of I started to to ask new questions that I ended becoming the structure of my PhD dissertation. So in addition to your your interest in kind of the circulation of information and print culture, um, which we're going to get into in a moment, one of the things that you make um, clear very early on in your book and in your work is situating um, colonial Venezuela within the larger kind of Caribbean. And I thought that perhaps you might, um, for our listeners who might be coming from outside of Latin American and Caribbean studies, how you might explain the way um, colonial Venezuela was situated in this kind of larger trans um, regional um, context. Yeah, this is this is a great question, uh, Sharika, because this also, in a way, responds to historiographical trends within Venezuela. So when you know when you take classes on Venezuelan history in Venezuela, you're always, you know, in, you know, of course the the scope is always very kind of a national history, right? Like Venezuela as a country, as a nation, what is the history of this country, right? And then at the same time, we are influenced or persuaded by 19th century narratives that wanted to connect Venezuela with South America, right? I think, in my opinion, it has to do with the process of independence in Venezuela this uh, group of countries that we, or nations that we call the Países Bolivarianos, the Bolivarian countries, the connections between Venezuela and Colombia and Ecuador and Peru and the way, you know, Bolivar became this strong force putting these countries together. And then, I mean, in this process of creating a national history that was deeply South American, I had the feeling that people forgot or they wanted to forget the connections between Venezuela and the Caribbean. And one of these connections, in my opinion, is Haiti. So when I finally decided that in order to understand how people use uh, written knowledge and morality to participate politically, I was impressed to see how important the information about Haiti became in Venezuela during the, the last years of colonialism. And um, 
So I, as I started looking into those documents, I was impressed on you know finding the incredible amount of knowledge that people had about Haiti, that the way they connected to you know deserters, uh, sailors, uh, families that were running away either from Haiti or from Santo Domingo. And it was like, how come no one told me this? In fact, when I went back to Venezuela to do archival work, I interviewed some historians and I remember talking to one of them and said, you know, I'm going to look into the impact of Haiti in Venezuelan political culture. And he said, you're, gonna, you're not going to find anything. And I was like, how's that? I was like, no, because the American Revolution and the French Revolution were far, far more influential than Haiti. <laughs> And, you know, the more I look into the archives, the more I found materials on Haiti and how important it was. And then I thought, well, there's an evident Caribbean connection. And somehow the historiography had forgotten this connection. And I wonder, well, I, I don't wonder anymore. At that time, I was wondering, but right now I'm pretty sure that this has to do with this silence of Haiti. Like, People don't want to bring Haiti into their histories. They don't want to say that there are connections that were important. And they just basically neglect the connection between Haiti and Venezuela. And in this case, between Venezuela and the Caribbean. So so I wanted to bring that out. I wanted to show that Venezuela was very Caribbean in many senses, not only because socially and culturally there are so more commonalities with the Caribbean world, but also because politically, and perhaps this is one of the most important arguments of the book, is that politically, Sandomang and all the ways the Atlantic revolutions were reverberated in the Caribbean were highly and importantly influential in Venezuela. That was something that I found very striking early on in your work, that um, you sort of predate our understanding for those of us who are, are familiar with colonial Venezuela and particularly um, the Spanish-American independence wars with Simón Bolívar. Um, your listeners, the listeners may not um, know the connection between Bolívar and Haiti. It's It was striking how you, you essentially argue that this is um, kind of the uh, middle to ending point of that story and that there's already a kind of a precursor of interactions um, that are occurring that you're, you're probably going to have an opportunity to uh, flesh out for us um, in, in a few moments. Um, one of the things that you said earlier that I thought might be helpful in providing a context um, to your book and for our, our listeners to get into some of your, your other arguments is to help us understand um, the ways in which you mentioned literacy um, or what literacy could have meant for um, residents of uh, Caracas and colonial Venezuela, you, you noted that there was not a printing press there until 1808. So what, how were people able to acquire um, printed material or how might we start to reevaluate what literacy means in a semi-literate society? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, basically one of the most important kind of a data that I work with uh, was a, private inventories of libraries. And uh, when you look into these libraries, I basically work with 94 libraries owned by, you know, private people in their homes. And is a, basically a total of, I think, around 3,000 titles. Um, and of course, 92, 94% of these books are Spanish books. So these are books that they are, they were importing from Spain and bringing to uh, Venezuela. And for me, the interesting thing is to, you know, to differentiate 
I mean, these are Spanish books, but of course, Venezuela is considered part of the Spanish monarchy, right? So it's not necessarily, they're not necessarily conceived by Caracas readers as foreign books, but still they had the feeling that these books were not connected with their realities. So it's very interesting to see that in their asking for permissions to have a printing press, they use this argument, like we need to be producers of our own knowledge because the books that we read, although they're interesting and they're, they're you know, connected with our realities, basically with the imperial reality of the Spanish monarchy, they're not connected to, for example, the kind of crops that we grow in Venezuela. So in order to, and they, this is very interesting because they follow a very kind of bourbonic, reformist uh, narrative in the way that we need to create books containing knowledge that is connected to our reality so we can be productive. We can uh, go and be more progressive. We can develop more our art and sciences. So that's an argument that they use. And for me, that's very interesting because it shows perhaps a first crack with you know, within the imperial system, the recognition by these colonial subjects that the books and the knowledge they are consuming are not completely attached to their reality and they need to have something else. So that was, I mean, that was part of the things that were going on there. And, and then I realized that people were very prolific creating their own texts that were not printed because they're not printing press but they were able to circulate within their, you know, circle of uh, friends or neighbors or between, you know, professors and students. So I discovered that, you know, manuscripts were still very important. And, you know, sometimes when we study the printing press, we just look into the printing press and we forget that even though you have books, people still continue writing down things and circulating their texts. So I started to look into that. Let me see if I can find more manuscripts, if I can find people writing things and circulating it among, you know, their friends or uh, students. That was one thing. The other thing that I realized early on is that there was a very interesting kind of a clandestine network of prohibited books, basically books from either France or any other European country containing ideas that went against the Spanish monarchy or against the values that the Spanish monarchy promoted. So, so there was like a, you know, pu- there was like a public network of book lending operating in a very effective way. And there was another kind of a more clandestine network of book lending that were carry on prohibited books. And, and then I discovered there is, there is another kind of a situation in the middle, which is when people were able to take some books, write down some parts of those books and put it in other kind of a handmade books or notes books that they had for themselves. And then they could make those circulate as well. So in my, I mean, for me, the interesting thing is to realize that even though the Spanish book was prominent in these libraries, there were other kind of written materials that were very effective and very popular that also circulated along these other books. So so that for me complicated the whole literacy world in Venezuela. And 
and complicated in a way that it was fascinating because I realized how creative and inventive people were in order precisely to become producers of their own knowledge. One of the things you said earlier was that initially when you came to this project, clearly, you, you know, uh, the people who would center um, your your narrative of your or your study were the Creole population, um, mm-hmm. uh, Americans of, of Spanish um, descent. And yet early on, you, you, you talk about this other um you know, community um, that's in Caracas who also was participating in the circulation of um, handwritten, you know, manuscripts and, and other kinds of printed material. And I, I thought this might be a good intervention for you to talk about the pardos, or I guess what we might want to call in English, uh, I don't know, people of uh, um, African descent who were free um, in Caracas at that time. How were they involved in this kind of circulation of uh, printed and handwritten material? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, this is kind of a discovery that happened as I was, you know, working on the archives, and I realized that there were certainly these very interesting characters who were pardos, as you say, they were mixed race uh, people, and in Venezuela, I mean, the mixed race uh, pardos group represented more than forty-five percent of the population. So they are demographically quite important. And, and of course, within, I've always said that the pardos category is one of the most difficult uh, categories, social categories to define. But even within the pardos category, of course, there are poor pardos and there are rich pardos. And the rich pardos are, you know, economically, uh, they are in a very good position. But of course, they have to live with an amount of restrictions that the colonial state and the white Creole elites had put on them. One of those restrictions, of course, have to do with education. Pardos, no matter how rich they were, were not allowed to go to public school to enter the university or to have access to the seminar, to, the, uh, to, the, to be a, a cleric. So this represented a huge uh, restriction. And, you know, part of those uh, accommodated families tried to, you know, push against this and it was not very easy until uh, they were able to, some of them, and these are better kind of exceptional cases to use the Gracias al Sacar, which is this kind of a title that allowed you to buy some sort of whiteness that gave you access to these other things like education or the seminar. But those are exceptional cases. So I early on, I discovered that, you know, part of those, even though there was a formal restriction on their education, and it was assume that they shouldn't be reading or writing. Of course, this was not the case. Uh, one of the most interesting things that I found, for example, is this case of barber shops that are used to as kind of a pardo schools. And the reason why we know about this is because when Simon Rodriguez, who's a kind of an early uh, educator, intellectual in, in Venezuela, he uh, pleaded for having a school of pardos and the reason why he's asking for this, first of all, is because he recognized how important, demographically speaking, the pardos were uh, in Venezuela. But second, because he recognized that they needed an education. And if, in fact, they were to follow the Spanish reformism, uh, then, you know, giving education to artisans was the most, uh, you know, good thing to do. It was kind of a, it was part of the common good uh, feeling that Spanish reformism share. So... So he used that uh, as a way to promote his idea of a school of pardos. But one thing he did is basically to create an, kind of an 
almost an ethnographic report about how pardos were being educated in Venezuela. And when I look into this, I was, you know, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, people are basically using these social spaces like a barbershop to get their kids educated, at least to get the basic, basic knowledge of, you know, literacy, reading, writing, and may, maybe doing some accounting or some math about something that allows them to either continue running the businesses of their parents or to have some sort of, you know, kind of a social status or, you know, the possibility to do something better for their own lives. And um, and then that, that was surprising because, again, if we assume what the law says, then we rapidly assume that, you know, pardos are not reading because they were not allowed to. But then when you look into these kind of underground spaces, social spaces for education, that people of African descent, in this case, free people of African descent are using, then you realize that this, the picture is more complex and more interesting. Not only because of that, but also because these pardos, many of them are able to communicate their ideas or their knowledge or literacy to slaves so or to enslaved people. So, so that connection for me was important. It was not easy, I have to confess, it was not easy to find these cases in the archives because, you know, as always, these are the groups that are silent and completely rejected from uh, the, you know, collection, the, the creation, fabrication of the uh, historical evidence. But, you know, it, when, you, when you look, you can find things. And, and that for me was one of the most interesting findings of, of this project. Uh, realizing that uh, people of African descent have found very creative ways to access literacy and they use that literacy to communicate their own ideas and their own knowledge. But that often came at a cost. If I, um, one of the things you also point out is the way um, the Spanish, you know, colonial um, administrators attempted to um, curtail and to prevent um, the acquisition of seditious texts, um, mm-hmm. both among the Creole population, but of this large um, Pardo population. And so, perhaps you could talk about um, a little bit more about the the ways in which um, the colonial were attempting to prevent this information. And it wasn't always, as you pointed out, with the circulation of um, written material or printed material, but it, it, it came in other ways too. Yeah. So, so this, is, this is precisely when looking into Haiti for me became particularly interesting because, you know, how do you, in, in, in my view, I was doing a history of everyday life, right? Like how I wanted to understand how everyday people in Venezuela had contact with the written word, had contact with literacy. But of course, as I said before, this is not something easy to find in the archives. It's not like you go to the archives and you look for literacy and you find something, right? So for me, the explosion of Haiti as a you know social political phenomenon that has a huge impact in the Caribbean, I use it as a window to look into, okay, what if Haiti is a knowledge that's important? And how are people accessing that knowledge? Is it orality? Is it, you know, written materials? What's going on? And this is where the connection between Venezuela and the Caribbean is so important. 
because, you know, as, as we know this also because Jesse Cromwell just published his book about contraband and smuggling webs in, in Venezuela. Venezuela was always an amazing place for smuggling. Uh, it has, if you look into the map, you see how huge the coast is. It's basically, even back then in colonial times, they called it País Abierto. It's an open country. And that's why it requires a lot of vigilance. Like we need to make sure, because it was also conceived of the gate of South America. So there was always this fear, we need to keep up. We need to control the gate. Because if people get into, you know, if insurgents or subordination enter Venezuela, then we're going to lose the whole continent. They use that, you know, kind of a very paranoid discourse several times. But these contraband webs allowed for the entrance not only of foodstuffs and crops that, you know, people in Venezuela wanted to exchange with people in the Caribbean, but it was also a very interesting way to get prohibited books and pamphlets and, you know, little papers or papeles sueltos, loose papers from the Caribbean into Venezuela. And this is one of the things that the colonial state will try to control, and it was almost impossible because it was truly impossible to control smuggling webs in Venezuela, basically. So this is one of the things that we'll try to pay attention to. And again, Haiti became such an important reference that then the colonial state had to increase their vigilance. And by increasing the vigilance, there's more need to record what's entering Venezuela. And that allows me, you know, in terms of, you know, methodologically, it allows me to see what kind of loose papers, pamphlets, letters, newspapers are coming from not only the Caribbean, but other countries in Europe through the Caribbean to Venezuela. So that's one of the places they will try to control, and it was almost impossible. Everyone was carrying a little paper in their pocket, and they were reading aloud. And so the other thing that for me was kind of a basically got out of their hands is rumors. And I, as you know, there's a whole chapter on my book about rumors. It was so difficult to control the not the oral knowledge that people share about what was going on in the French colonies and what implication it has for uh, African descent people, what implication it has for slaves. Um, so that knowledge is also circulating and it seems to be unstoppable. It was very difficult to avoid that kind of knowledge that was coming through these kind of oral channels. So that would be, I mean, that for me was one of the most interesting uh, things to, to do. That chapter, I have to say, I always repeat this, it was the most difficult chapter to work on because how do you capture rumors? That was very hard for me. But I realized that, you know, there's nothing better than having a paranoid state to realize how important and relevant rumors were, not only for the state, but for people participate in that process of knowledge transmission or information sharing. The the oral trans, transmission of information included, um, you know, examples such as songs. I, I, I thought that it might be interesting for you to share um, with our listeners the way you opened up one of your chapters about a, a little enslaved child who um, was found um, singing a song and, and, and what happens as a, you know, as a response to what he was singing and, and how the colonial, you know, officials attempted to um, kind of prevent um, further information um, from these songs from kind of circulating to, to their, um, you know, they're, they're unsuccessful in doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's kind of, I have to say, that's like a very 
cute, I'm sorry I use that word, but it's like a cute anecdote of the book. Uh, it's cute not only because little Joseph or Jose is only 80 years old and he's basically singing a French revolutionary song in the middle of La Guaira. And it's important, again, to, rem- to, to keep in mind the connection with the Caribbean. He's a, s- a slave boy from Curaçao who's spending some time in La Guaira and with his mom. And there are two other enslaved men who are with him singing also the same songs. And apparently the master who's a, or, or the enslaver who's someone from Curaçao has had asked, asked them to sing the songs among the people of La Guaira. And then he was discovered. But the most interesting thing for me it was to realize how the officials dealt with little Joseph. You know, like they asked him, did you know what you're singing? And of course he was like, no, I'm singing this song that, you know, is so, you know, I just joyful or whatever. And they realized the content was completely revolutionary. It has, you know, played, uh, it was praising the Republic, praising the French Republic and the French Revolution. And at some point in that report, they said, you know, little Joseph is innocent. He doesn't know what he's singing. But that doesn't mean that the message of his song is not extremely dangerous and we need to control this. And and then how do you control singing, right? That's something that's so out of, you know, how do you do that? I mean, of course, they were able to keep him with with them. And, you know, five days later, they have to send him over to Curaçao with his mom and the other two uh, enslaved men. But there was this fear that whatever he sang stay in the minds of people. And that's not good. So how do we control that? That's one thing. And for me, the other thing is to realize that singing or poetry or storytelling are semi-fixed forms of communication, right? They're not as ephemeral as a conversation uh, because there are certain formulas and certain, yeah, it's like mnemonic formulas that allow the person reciting or singing to repeat the same message again with very little modification. And that was, I think, what really concerned people. Like these songs could be heard anywhere and people will know what they're talking about. So we need to control this. But it's evident they're not, like, as I said in the book, they're trying to reach out, to reach or or to catch up with this how fast the revolutionary message is being spread in in the province. And it's very hard for the colonists to catch up with that. And um, so orality became perhaps the most, for me, I always say it's one of the most important media that people are using to know about what's going on, not only in San Domingue and Santo Domingo and Guadalupe and Martinique, but also to talk about what are the implications of this. Because that, that's one thing I also wanted to mention in my book. One thing is the knowledge that's coming from these places and that's arriving into the Venezuelan coastal towns and how people talk about this. But the other thing is how they decide to use this knowledge to do something else. So that's why, you know, the book, as you, you saw, is divided in two parts, right? The first part is about media. And I'm able to talk about books in the first chapter and these loose papers in the second chapter or what I call ephemeral written materials and then rumors. But the last three chapters are three social movements that what I wanted to look into that is precisely how information is used 
by the people involved in these movements in order to mobilize people, to attract people to their political movements. So that for me became the most important thing, realizing that it's not only, the book is not only about identifying what kind of knowledge or information was shared about, in this case, the Atlantic revolutions, especially Haiti, but also how that knowledge was used locally by political actors. Well, that's actually a wonderful segue to talk about one of those three movements, um, the the rebellion that happens at Coro in 1795 with the, you know, uh, the hero of that event, um, Jose Chirino, if I'm if I'm remembering his first name. Yes. Um, um, could you talk a little bit about that rebellion, why it occurred and how it um, situ- how it was situated within these kind of larger kind of revolutionary trends? Yeah. So the Jose Leonardo Chirino uh, rebellion is perhaps one of the most important black rebellions in the history of Venezuela. Um, And it's very interesting because the historiography has always been divided uh, in the sense that there's a very rich and large historiography about the Coro Rebellion precisely because it's one of the most important ones in, in Venezuelan history. And this divide has to do with, you know, one group of historians who were more oriented towards kind of a political uh, information or political uh, impulse, and they they tried to bring this idea that the Decoro rebels were inspired by Haiti and were inspired by the French Revolution. They wanted to create a republic, and they wanted to uh, make sure that they have political agency and are using Haiti as a model. And there was another kind of a more economic, socially oriented historiography that looked more into the local conditions that enslaved people are experiencing in Coro. There is an increased vigilance in terms of uh, tribute or taxes that they have to pay, especially the ones who are transporting goods from the countryside to the cities. There was an increase of Alcabala taxes, which are these taxes are, are transportation taxes. And so there is a, an environment of increasing economic discontent because of these uh, reforms that have to do, of course, with the Bourbon reforms that are affecting the social landscape in, in Coro. So, so the division was always very interesting because one historian who said, like, these rebels were completely inspired by the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, and the other group would say, well, not really. They were just discontent because of the economic pressures they were going through, and Haiti was not in, that important. And in fact, Haiti seems to be, this, this is their argument, Haiti seems to be a... Um, excuse or a, a part of that paranoid discourse that the state is using to increase repression in the area. So I was always like, I don't know. I'm not convinced by any of these two interpretations. I don't think it's fully one or the other one. Why? Wh- I mean, why wouldn't we assume that it could be a combination of both? And the interesting thing for me was to find out that this discussion happened right after the rebellion of Coro between two colonial officials. One of them is saying these are the consequences of not, you know, keeping the slave population, you know, under discipline. They are learning about these uh, movements in Haiti and they know what's going on and they're using what it as an example. And there was another official saying this is not what's going on. What's going on is that they are completely stressed and discontent with the new tributes that we have created and we need to remove them. And these two officials have that discussion basically while working together on and sitting on a table with the governor. That was 
at, that was at this debate that happened just after the rebellion of Coro. And then I realized that in a way, historians have been taking sides depending on you know what official they believe um, or not. So I, I thought I have to integrate everything and look into perhaps understanding information networks will give me new hints or clues into how things are developing. And as I said, I found there is a middle ground between the two situations. Of course, there, are, there is increasing discontent among the slave population of Koro and also the free blacks who are feeling the restrictions and increasing pressure that the new taxes structure have created on them. And it's interesting to see, to realize that even before the rebellion, there were different um, uh, interests in reaching an agreement. So there were cases in which men of colors like Jose Leonardo Chirino will approach his, uh, his, uh, work, uh, his uh, em- employer and he will ask, why don't we negotiate this? This is not good for us. It's not good for you because, you know, also the white population of Coro have to pay taxes or increase in taxes. It's not good for the Native American, the indigenous communities living in the area. Why don't we do this, right? So, so there was an interest to negotiate even before the rebellion of Coro. And these several attempts that different actors had in trying to create a better tax structure for them was always repealed by the colonial state. They, basically, they didn't listen. On the same situation or on part of the same uh, kind of um, social landscape, there are, of course, rumors about Haiti coming into the Coro region. There is a connect, a very important connection between Coro and Curaçao. For years, uh, Curaçao enslaved people have basically self-emancipated and coming to uh, Coro and creating these Luango communities, and they're very important. Um, so they, but they're also bringing knowledge about what's going on in the Caribbean with them. So that knowledge is being circulated, and and people are familiar to what's going on uh, in Haiti or in Saint Domingue in this case. And um, so my my idea is that this knowledge about Haiti became a language of contention. It became a form of negotiation, and of course they ended organizing a rebellion. But even within the process of organizing the rebellion there were attempts to negotiate with the colonial state. I mean, at the time, these are almost more than 350 uh, African descent people came down to the city of Coro. The first thing they did is to send an envoy to give a message about what they wanted. And of course, they were, they, they faced kind of a massacre. They, they faced just cannons shooting at them. It was unacceptable that they were willing to negotiate anything. So so I wanted to look into that also because, in my opinion, Haiti was used afterwards as different narrative to justify the way the colonial state will react. So, But everyone has, in a way, a different interpretation of how important Haiti was. And, and that's why that chapter is divided between, you know, how, for example, the colonial state, we use the most radical version of Haiti to say that what the rebels in Cotto wanted to do is basically to create a black republic, which, by the way, I never found those words anywhere pronounced by either witnesses or people who were rebelling. So that is very clear that it's a fabrication from the colonial state. And then, of course, there's this fear that the white Creoles and white enslavers in Cotto 
share the idea that the rebellion of Cordoba was a way of racial revenge, racial war against them. And then when you look into discourses or narratives of the rebellion used by witnesses or by the women of the rebels who were basically they survived and they were able to give their version of the rebellion, then you realize that perhaps uh, the rebellion was being used as a strategy, as a political strategy to negotiate new terms for uh, the African descent population in Coro. So, so that for me, I mean, again, it became, Haiti became the language or the window that allowed me to see how its, its knowledge was used in this political setting in particular. And yet again, uh, the the fears of these colonial officials, um, you know, they had reason to to be concerned. I mean, you you mentioned in the in, a, in another chapter, which you started out with, you talked about these um, barbershops as as schools for for pardos, and um, these barbershops become um, after the Coro Rebellion a site for a republican movement. And so, I thought that you might move us into that chapter where you're looking at another way that um, information, rumors, but also um, those literacy, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, group meetings in the barbershop um, became a site for kind of republicanism um, in colonial Venezuela. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's the uh, following chapter. And um, so for me, it was, uh, again, that there were several discoveries that, that uh, kind of find out in that, that movement. That is a is a political movement. I don't want to use the word conspiracy because it's basically replicating the colonial, the state interpretation of the movement. But it's it's a political movement that is quite interesting because in a way it was conceived as a mixed race movement, meaning that people, uh, white Creoles, white Spaniards, meaning peninsulares, mixed race pardos, but also Free blacks, negros libres from La Guaira, and even slaves were encouraged or persuaded to join uh, this movement. Uh, it's a movement that's very different from the Rebellion of Coro because it's not particularly organized by, uh, by either a free black person or an enslaved, but they, they, there is a realization among the collaborators of the movement that they need to find ways to reach out for this African descent population that's so important in Venezuela. Again, basically because there's 45% of Venezuelans who are pardos and there are 16% that are considered African descent, like um, basically Negros, blank, eh, Blacks. So, so we have, the historiography have tend to see this movement as a movement that was led by two uh, white uh, Creole uh, leaders and, but then when you basically scratch the surface, you realize that there is a character like Narciso del Valle, who's a pardo. He belongs to the Pardo Militia, which is an important kind of a military group in Venezuela. There are important Pardo Militias in, in Venezuela. He's part of that militias. He's a barbershop. is across the street from the barracks, the military barracks of, of Pardos. And... Um, and then you realize he, he was so he was such a crucial character in making sure that this political knowledge that's produced in the process of planning for the political movement, how that is translated into uh, other social groups like free blacks or 
pardos in the setting of La Guaira, right? So, so for me, paying attention to information networks in the conspiracy of La Guaira or the movement of La Guaira was crucial to understand how this movement is uh, integrating or is attempting to integrate different social racial groups of, in this case, La Guaira or Caracas. So that for me became one of the most important thing. And then this is the place where I was able to visualize in a more clear ways how these semi-literate media work out in the setting of, of the planning of La Guaira. And this is where, you know, I was able to realize that there were, there was an, they were very prolific creating a set of texts that were designed and produced to be spread among the population. So there are stories, there is a song, there are a couple of songs, there are uh, different kind of a narrative formula to persuade people to learn about the movement of La Guaira, to learn about the values that the movement of La Guaira was supporting or uh, creating, right? is a movement that from the beginning was uh, anti-colonial, basically is against colonial control, but it's also supporting free trade, uh, is supporting uh, e equality among the races, like Igualdad de las Razas, and they use that, or Igualdad de las Castas, equality among the castas, and, and is promoting the abolition of slavery. And they basically explain a plan on how they will do that once they are success in their movement. And is also promoting the elimination of um, Indian tributes, the Indios Tributarios. So it has a, you know, it has a, an incredible, sophisticated set of goals that they want to reach, but they realize that in order to reach those goals, they need to persuade the population to join the movement. And this is why I think there are two sets of documents or texts that they created. One group of texts are there to educate the population into these values of equality, freedom, or uh, natural rights. And another sets of documents that are more political in, intended that are in order to prove that they were organized and they, they, were, they already have figured out how their new republic, because they do use the word republic, will operate. So, I mean, for me, the most interesting thing is to realize that, you know, a barbershop owned by a mixed race pardo became perhaps what, and I use this, I, I'm borrowing this word from uh, Lehman Johnson's book, it, it became a revolutionary workshop. It became a place where people met to talk about their ideas, to talk about what they're planning to do, uh, to talk about the values they support to even express disagreements because it's not like everyone was on the same page. And I think, of course, that would be the main reason why the movement failed because basically people who were thought to be part of the movement were not completely convinced and they basically regretted, regretted or they decided to tell others what was going on. But, um, but it's, it's quite interesting to see how, you know, 15 years, 13 years before independence, there was a movement developed in La Guaira, which is such an important place regarding, you know, communication and the connections with the Caribbean precisely, this movement created a sense of how a republic will look in Venezuela and what republican would mean for the people in Venezuela. 
as you point out, you know, these two examples, Coro and what was happening at the barbershop in La Guaira, are kind of internal, you know, they're, they're influenced by things that are happening outside of Venezuela. But, you know, these are people who have gripes and grievances and are advocating for change on their own terms. And, and yet uh, the colonial officials are still very fearful of kind of this, this kind of invasion of, um, you know, revolutionary ideas and changes, which you, you draw into this kind of final, you know, chapter, which I found completely fascinating that the idea of these uh, black corsairs, uh, you know, from um, the French Caribbean coming to not only invade Venezuela from this, you know, open country coastline that you pointed out earlier, but also in terms of the ideas that they were going to generate. So I was hoping that we would talk about uh, these these corsairs, you know, coming in to to Venezuela and in the ways in which they continue to stoke um, kind of the fear and the desire to kind of contain revolutionary ideas. Yeah, well, that's it's quite interesting because when you look into uh, the colon the colonial state narrative, there's always this kind of a repeating idea that everything bad that's happening is because someone else brought it to Venezuela. Because otherwise, Venezuela is a is a happy province. It looks is blossoming. Is and and in a way, there's a. I mean, there's. Economically speaking and socially speaking, we see uh, this as the goal. I mean, there are historians who believe these are kind of the golden years of colonial Venezuela. Is uh, making you know people are making more money than ever because of cacao, and and things are looking pretty good. And people have. I'm, I'm talking about people everywhere. I mean, many people. Well, this is the times where Pardo's families are becoming more rich because they are you know they're wise businessmen doing a lot of money. So it looks like. These are golden years of social and economic stability. Why would be someone interested in getting rid of this? Is everything is looking great? So, so the colonial state narrative is like, ah, this is not, you know, this is not something that Venezuelans will do uh, because they seem to be doing okay. This is something that responds to this horrible contagion of revolution that's developing in the Caribbean. So that, you know, that explanations are produce and reproduce over and over, repeat it again. This is not something that Venezuelans will do. This is they're doing it because they were contaminated by foreign ideas. And of course, the case of the, uh, these are the case of, of the conspiracy of, 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 I'm sorry, Francisco de Pirela in Maracaibo became, of course, a perfect example for them to explain how this is going on. And of course, they're not, they're not necessarily fabricating the evidence. They know because there's a lot of intelligentsia information coming from different places, especially from Puerto Rico to Venezuela, from Santo Domingo, from Cuba. There's a, it's very interesting to see how important the connections between the general capital in Venezuela became during these years with the governors in these other Spanish uh, Caribbean places. And there's a lot of information talking about these black cruisers that are going around the Caribbean carrying their values and ideas and spreading the news. And of course, it's impossible to talk about this without mentioning the most important work, which is Julius Scott, The Common Way, right? So, so for me, I mean, I have to tell you, when I read, I read his thesis back when I was t- uh, taking classes with Ada Ferrer, and it basically, it was an eye-opener. I was like, how come I never thought about this? 
And of course, Julius Scott mentioned Venezuela in several parts of his books. And I just, I mean, for me, that was an inspiration to work, to, to work on my project. And then I found the case of the conspiracy of, of, of Pirela, the case of Maracaibo, and the presence of this kind of a black or, or Afro-Caribbean actors had in the process of creating this uh, conspiracy or planning this movement. And of course, the historiography has a very divided uh, opinion regarding it, you know, regarding the conspiracy of, of Pirela. Some of them believe, uh, some historians believe, and I will uh, mention Alejandro Gomez here, that this was not really a political movement. It was all basically an act of piracy. piracy. It was basically these are black pirates who just want to sack uh, the rich families of Maracaibo, and they just found someone, in this case, Pirela, who's a Pardo militiaman, and he's also he's also a, a tailor. Uh, he found him as a way to enter the society in Maracaibo. Um, that that is a possibility. I haven't, you know, I, I do not completely reject that possibility, but for me, it's quite revealing to see how important was for Pirenda, but also for the captain who was captured, because it was this was, of course, a failed attempt, uh, how they used language of equality and the local discontent regarding colonial governance, how they talk about that. That means that it was still something important, that people were not completely happy or content, that this is not necessarily the golden years of colonial times in Venezuela, and there was a, an increase in discontent with colonial rule. And perhaps this was just a way to show that discontent, right? So for me, that was, I mean, that was what's going on in Maracay, but, but of course what happened there became kind of a, a extremely important evidence for the colonial state to increase vigilance to say that things are, you know, ideas and values and republicanism are coming from the outside world and we need to control that outside world. And one way of doing this is by persuading the population that perhaps what happened in Haiti or what happened in San in Santo Domingo when Toussaint invaded Santo Domingo was not the best thing for them. So there is an increasing interest in part of the colonial state to do what I think is like a two-pronged movement. In one hand, they try to demonize, to show Haiti as the most horrible thing it could happen to Venezuela. And on the other hand, they opened new spaces of negotiation, new spaces of tr- in order to try to keep the population of color, particularly the African descent population in Venezuela, content and calm. And it's quite interesting to see how governors in the different provinces of Venezuela started to send letters out to masters, to planters, to everyone who had uh, African descent people under their control, either as free workers or as enslaved people, convincing them that they should not mistreat them, that they should listen to them, that these people um, should be pay attention to in a good way, that they should give them some benefits, that perhaps it's not a bad idea to eliminate the indigenous tribute in some regions of Venezuela, that perhaps it's not a bad idea to 
pay attention to the kind of food that enslaved population are having in the hacienda, and maybe they can improve the quality of meat or even the quality of tobacco. Like, you know, when I realized, you know, there was an interest in part of the colonial state to accommodate certain petitions from coming from the African descent population, I realized, well, this is a political strategy to calm down the spirits, to try to persuade people not to join a radical or create a radical movement. And for me, this would be the only explanation why, you know, we have the conspiracy of Pirela in 1799, and then there's almost nothing in the following years until 1808 with the Spanish monarchical crisis. So it seems like the first decade of the 19th of the yes of the 19th century, there was an increasing effort in part of colonial state agents to calm the spirits, to control, you know, the situation so they could, you know, pass the page regarding what happened the last decade of the 18th century, which was a particularly convulsive, turbulent decade in Venezuela. I found that uh, discussion um, particularly fascinating at the end of the book and made it made understanding kind of the process of independence in Venezuela a little bit more understandable in the sense that you seem to be suggesting that this kind of revolutionary period and efforts to contain or respond to it basically led to these amelioration practices in the colony, which might help to explain the the ways in which um, both the Francisco Miranda and Simon Bolivar's attempts to kind of generate a uniform um, kind of, um, you know, kind of, you know, a unidirectional kind of approach to independence really, really difficult because there's this, you know, prehistory that has to be contended with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you said, <laughs> you said it better than me, but I think, um, I mean, it's interesting because I never, I have I never see my book as an independence book or I wouldn't, but then, you know, the more I talk to people about it, I realize how important the book have, I mean, how interesting people are reading the book regarding what's happening after this. Like people have been telling me, hmm, now I look into Venezuela independence and the, with different eyes because you, you, you push me to think about what's, what's going on before. And I, I mean, if you compare the independence movement in Venezuela and how difficult it was to negotiate certain terms and then you look at the rebellion, the sorry, the conspiracy of the movement of La Guaira. Then you realize the movement of La Guaira was even more radical than anything that happened after that in the, you know, early 19th century. Um, you know, you know, think about the abolition of slavery. No one really wanted to touch that topic. It was a difficult topic to touch, and we we all know that you know Petion and Bolivar met and. Apparently, Bolivar made the promise that he would work towards the abolition of slavery, and he apparently tried, but it was impossible. It was something impossible to pay attention to or to negotiate. So that's there. Is it? I mean, this this previous decade is a, is it's becoming a shadow for you know the political leaders that are are going to emerge in the eighteen tens and the eighteen fifties and the eighteen sixties. And, and it's interesting because it's a shadow, but it's a shadow they don't really want to talk about it. So one of the things that I, I have been doing, and there's an, another journal article that I published with my, my colleague, Krishna Red, about the political memory of Coro. It's interesting to see, to see, for example, that Bolivar never mentioned Coro. I don't think he didn't know about Coro. I'm pretty sure he knew about what happened in Coro in 1795 because it was so important. But he didn't want to bring memories of Coro into the political environment of Venezuela 
in the early 19th century because Cotto was looking probably in his eyes something that resembled more the, you know, Black Republic of Haiti. And that perhaps was not a good example for him to use politically, right? So so for me, I mean, the more I listen to the reaction that people having are having about the book, the more I understand how it complicates our view of Venezuelan independence or why not the Nueva Granada independence as well, Colombian independence as well. Well, with the time that we have remaining, I'm curious to hear what you are currently working on. What what's you know on your on your horizon? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so my new project is on kind of the trans imperial experiences in the island of Trinidad. Uh, Trinidad, as as you probably know, is I was part of Venezuela until 1797. That was taken or invaded by the British, and then it became. A British possession. But uh, Trinidad is such an interesting place because for the first 12 years, uh, the British colonial officials could not do a lot and they basically have to keep the Spanish laws. And, and that meant many different things because at the end, they ended using their ideas of what the Spanish laws was in order to create a new kind of a colonial order. So I'm looking into kind of a colonial experimentations in Trinidad, but basically as a place as trans-imperial because it was a Spanish a dominion before and then it became British. And I want basically to look into how people in Trinidad, and I mean, you know, white French planters, mixed race population coming from the Caribbean or from Venezuela, because there was a very strong connection between Venezuela and Trinidad, uh, enslaved Africans, coming from other places in the Caribbean, living in Trinidad, how they experienced the trans-imperial transition, how they experienced experience that uh, transition and how they were able to recognize gaps that they could use for their advantage. Basically how the empire is constructed from, in this case, the colonial setting. And also, of course, how the British Empire tried to deal with you know, the uh, uniqueness of Trinidad. That, that's my new project. I've been in a couple of archives already and I'm collecting a very rich material. But I have to say that many, a lot of the material that I'm using is material that I collected for my dissertation that I never used and is there. So, you know, we never, we never finish working with things that we found like 10 years ago. So I'm using... A lot of things that I collected from the Caracas archives, and I have some materials from the Spanish archives and the and the UK archives. So I'm looking into that. And again, for me, the fascinating part is also to understand how the Spanish Empire and the British Empire reacted to the Age of Revolutions and how they that changed also their forms to experiment with colonialism. Mm. Well, I look. I definitely look forward to to this new project on these trans imperial kind of um, interworkings um, in colonial tr- Trinidad. I want to thank you for um, this interview with New Books Network. Thank you so much, Arika. It was a real pleasure to talk to you, and I just wish you the best. You can find a link to Tides of Revolution: Information Insurgencies in the Crisis of Colonial Rule in Venezuela on our channel. Until next time. <laughs>